biggest charmer is America's smallest con artist. Now, they're going from the poorhouse to the penthouse, and they get what they deserve. <laughs> a family. James Belushi, Curly Sue, rated PG. Starts Friday, October 25th at a theater near you. You like it, the juice? Do you like it, the juice? Mm. I didn't have a can this time. The juice is good, huh? Oh, that's right. We're watching the movie in the background, so I can watch the three and a half minute fucking opening credit sequence. Yeah, Curly Sue. Uh, we well, I, I had, I took notes. Welcome to Saturday Night Jive, everybody. I know. I took notes, and the we suck at podcasting. My first note says intro. So let's first thing off the list. Let's intro the podcast. Welcome to Saturday Night Jive, where we talk about movies featuring Saturday Night Live cast members. And this week we're talking. Ah, the great James Belushi and his starring vehicle from 1991, Curly Sue. Or John Belushi, as I will no doubt mistakenly call him several times throughout the podcast. You know at one point Ben is going to say John Belushi is, sucks in this movie. And can I just... Well, and he does suck. Both, both Belushi's sucked in this movie, as far as I'm concerned. But I just want to throw this out to our audience, because I don't remember, but I'm assuming... We prefaced, like, the last episode, we said, next week, we're going to watch The War with Grandpa, starring Robert De Niro and somebody from Saturday Night Live. I don't even remember Rob who. Riggle. Rob Riggle was in that movie. And then uh, I, we said, like, oh, you know what? We're going to establish a new role where if, if we're watching, like, 20 minutes of we don't like it and we think it's going to be boring, we can opt to do something else. And you, you use this fucking role right away. <laughs> And you go, okay, I don't want to watch what looks like a boring family drama. What do you say we watch Curly Sue? <laughs> a slapstick comedy family drama. What did you think this movie was when you suggested it as an alternative to the apparently much more boring War with Grandpa? Well, I did watch uh, the first hour of the War with Grandpa, um, and I turned it off after the second appearance of Robert De Niro's dick. Yeah, that movie's just not, wasn't interesting to me at all. So I just like randomly picked Jim Belushi. And I've always been curious about Curly Sue because this is the movie that was the last film directed by John Hughes. And that's really the only thing I knew about it. But the plot of it, uh, the plot synopsis interests me. A homeless man and his daughter just like bumming around the the big city. Well, it's basically Paper Moon. I mean, I don't know the, the story of Paper Moon beyond the premise of a con man and his daughter on a con. And I just, I don't see why this would be the movie he quit over. I mean, I know it didn't do well, and it wasn't reviewed well, but it seems very much of a pace with stuff we know about John Hughes. Why was this the thing? And I, I couldn't find anything on that. Like, why is this the, the last movie he did? Because he died many years later. He could have made other movies. Yeah, well, and he was still a prolific writer in the 90s. But yeah, this was the last movie he directed. And I, I looked everywhere, too, to see if there was something like, if there was a reason, like, he, this made him quit. But it could just be all circumstantial. It could just be John Hughes just never directed a movie. Maybe he had plans to and died before he did. But, yeah, I always thought it bombed. And then that, like, he was like, never again, I'll never direct again. But this movie didn't actually bomb. I looked up the fucking trivia for this. It opened in second place at the box office. Then the next week... Stayed steady at second place. And then the third week, it was number one at the box office. What the fuck were people thinking in 1991 to go see a Jim Belushi and a little girl movie? Well, I will say it is poorly directed. Like, his his grasp of tone, and I think we'll be talking about that a lot as we go on, 
Uh, not great. No, I could not, for the life of me, figure out what type of movie this was supposed to be. Is this a comedy? Is this a drama? It seems like it's a throwback to like like movies from like the 1930s, like like fucking uh, Charlie Chaplin and the Little Tramp, you know. Like for some reason, I wouldn't question if Charlie Chaplin was just wandering around the streets of New York City with a little boy, because that movie was made in the Great Depression. But when Jim Belushi's walking around the streets with uh, of New York City with a an illiterate girl that he's not even I thought was his daughter from the poster, not his daughter turns out. Just a... But I think you're meant to think that they are father and daughter until that's revealed. Because that's later in the movie that he says that he's not actually your dad. Yeah, I mean, he's a father figure to her. He's taken care of her since she was a baby. But um, I was I was sad. Like, that's a sad thing to see. But this movie makes it seem like it's slapsticky, hilarious mm-hmm. fun to watch a, a grown man share a sandwich with a, a little girl in an abandoned church. And Steve Carell, and apparently his first film performance just came on screen. <laughs> like, <laughs> kind of sad as well. Like, ninth build in the credits, too. <laughs> like, like pretty high up in the no end. No lines, just well, yeah, there were, nods once. There's not a lot of characters in this movie. It's basically just, like, four people uh, and then a bunch of extras. So, yes, Stephen Carell in the end credits is, like, fifth build in this movie as Tessio, the waiter with no lines. So much of it takes place in the apartment that, like, I, it felt like almost like a play that they were adapting into a movie. A little bit. Yeah, no, it's very insulated, you know? There's just, there's not a lot going on in this movie. Uh, so to give, like, a brief plot synopsis before we get into it, because there's a lot of stupid shit in this movie I want to talk about. One involves what we're looking at right now on the screen, which is this killer chef who comes out. Now, is he a chef, or is he a bodyguard that they just dress up like a chef because, like, they need somebody to throw people out, but they're a fancy restaurant, so they don't want people to think that they're like there's a guy there that throws people out, so they dress him up like a chef. Yeah, I got the impression that this guy was hired specifically because Jim Belushi tries this shit all the time, and they need a big guy in the back to, like, rough him up when he comes in. Oh, so this isn't the first time. Okay, I like that. I, I, that so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that we, we could probably analyze, but I don't know that I have the strength to do it. Because it's also just so mediocre and boring. Oh my god, it is so dull and slowly paced. This was a bummer to watch. And in full disclosure, I watched some of it at one and a half speed. I just couldn't get over like the fucking slow pace of this thing. Well, plus there are so many fucking montages. <laughs> so to get to a plot synopsis of Curly Sue before we get into it. Uh, Curly Sue is a movie about Jim Belushi. He's a homeless man. And he also has a little girl with him, Curly Sue. And they just wander around the streets of New York City. They're looking for a meal. They're looking for a buck. And then they come up with this scheme to pretend to get hit by a car. They dupe this rich lawyer lady into staying at her place. Some A, a couple of complications ensue. And then the lady ends up falling in love with Curly Sue. And, you know, it becomes kind of a romantic thing at the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> the least fucking cred- uh, credible romantic plot of any fucking movie we've ever watched for this podcast. This l- it just suddenly happens that she also likes Jim Belushi. This lawyer gives up her entire life for a hobo date. With Jim Belushi, which, like, if you'd said, like, it was a hobo, but, like, I don't know, you cast, like, Pierce Brosnan or somebody. It was like, he's handsome, but he's still a hobo for some reason. I'd believe it. Fucking Jim Belushi, even like clean cut Jim Belushi at the end, he's got a suit on and shit. I'm so like, I still don't fucking believe this shit. Jim Belushi steals her some popcorn and she's like, oh, fuck. 
I'm reevaluating everything in my life now because of this fucking hobo date I'm on. Um, but anyway, we'll get to that. Well, and that, but that was my big problem with the movie is, and I don't know if that's just the John Hughes instinct to end everything on a pat, happy thing, but I feel like this movie might have even worked for me ultimately if Jim Belushi had not shown up at the end. Like, he left the note and was gone, and he realized, like, I'm not good for her, she's in a better life, and... Like, it's not healthy for me to, like, bring up this, this girl as a con artist. You know, like, he, she has a better life with this woman, and I'm going to go off and maybe be a better man that's worth, you know, or that's worthy of her or something later on. But, like, I feel like a more melancholy ending to just have everything sort of wrap up in a bow at the end. I just felt like, well, what the fuck was the point of it all? Like, Yeah, this movie is so weird because for the whole movie, we're watching a homeless man take care of this little girl. At first, it's like, oh, the little girl, she's got, like, street smarts, right? She's doing that thing, like, little kid actors where she's, like, speaking way smarter than she should be. But then it's like, oh, I can't read. And, uh, yeah, I don't know shit about anything. And then Jim Belushi's like, yeah, if I put her into school, then uh, the state will take her away from me. And then they'll look down on her because she's on welfare. She's better off with me. Not reading books and living on the street and eating garbage sandwiches. And I think at the end of the movie, we're supposed to go like, yeah, he had a point. Well, I mean, it's sort of a middle ground where, I mean, they do ultimately put her in school, but it's when they're at a point uh, where that's not going to mean that she has to leave him. But yeah, it's it seems like the movie never judges him for keeping her self, somewhat selfishly, mostly selfishly, in a situation that... Like, she could have a better life, just not with him, but he can't make the, the selfless choice to to not be in her life. Yeah, and we never really get any story of why they are homeless. And in fact, they purposefully, I think, leave that out of the movie for some reason, because there's a scene where Jim Belushi, it's this, like, the big dramatic scene in the movie, uh, where she's like, well, what happened to the mother? And he's like, ah, she she's buried in Florida, that's all you have to know. And so, yeah, he's not even Curly Sue's dad. He's a guy who had sex with her mother, and the, the baby's somebody else's, and then she died, and he's been raising the kid. But we get no backstory on, like, did he ever have anything together, or, like, did he drop everything to raise this kid? Does he just like living on the rails? Was he always a hobo, and then just had hobo sex with this woman, and this is his life now? I have no idea. I feel like that's the suggestion, ultimately, because when he does decide to get a job... It's fairly easy. Like, you don't have the scene in a real movie where, like, he'd go to the the, the unemployment office or whatever, the pl- job placement office, and he can't handle himself in the real world. Like, I'm thinking of, like, like, Captain Fantastic or Leave No Trace or something like that, where, like, there's a reason he's homeless because he can't function as a, you know, adult, you know, with a job in the real world. He's just kind of crazy. Homeless people, most of the time, they have mental issues that, that keep them homeless. I mean, yeah, a lot of them, it's just circumstances, but usually those people can be helped, and they seek help, and they you know they ultimately get out of it. You know, it's a, it's a momentary thing. For you to have, be a lifelong hobo, generally it's because you can't be anything other than that. But this movie's like, no, he could have just done that all the time, and just didn't for some reason. Well, it was to the point that when that happened, when he showed up in a suit, and he was like, I got a job, they're paying me real money. I'm like, this is a con, right? Like, he's conning them again. This is all part of, like, some ruse to bilk them out of money. Or just he was ashamed of the fact that he can't hold down a job and can't get one, so he just faked it. Yeah, I assumed it was a lie. Yeah, so did I. Hello? 
Hi. Hi. Guess what? I got a job. <laughs> great. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not a great job, but it's work. I get my first paycheck in a week. I haven't done that in a long time. Well, I'm very proud of you. Yeah? Well, it was no big deal, really, but uh, it just feels better to be working, you know? I think John Hughes is trying to make, uh, like, I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> like, what is this movie? Well, that, but that's, that's the thing. John Hughes, I don't think, could make the version of this movie that could work. He gets the idea, the premise of plucky young girl and homeless guy and, you know, kind of con jobs that, that turn into a romantic comedy. He gets that, but he it's never going to occur to somebody like John Hughes that, no, like, that doesn't work because you're not delving into the mental illness angle. Like, he, I think he's just too schmaltzy. And that's, I think, the thing with this movie is it has... The, it's poorly directed, like I said, but it's all the elements of a John Hughes movie in terms of like the heartwarming stuff and the you know the quirky characters. But I don't know that he knows how to put those elements together as well as somebody like Chris Columbus does in uh, Home Alone, you know, or something like, that was Chris Columbus, right? Yeah, yeah, like somebody like like a better director can can hit that tone. Whereas like like you think of Home Alone, it's got all these disparate elements that. Doing it wrong, that's a horrifying movie. Like, people talk about it like a horror movie, but he manages to make it heartwarming, even though there are these crazy characters, and there's, like, the creepy old man that turns sweet and all this. There's a lot of stuff that could have gone wrong. You need a deft hand. And John Hughes, as a writer, can put all that stuff together, but as a director, he is not deft enough to actually make it all work. Yeah. If this movie was better directed, I wouldn't be so put off by the fact that, like, no, someone needs to, like, pick up this girl and take her away from Jim Belushi. Like, that's the whole thing... <laughs> That's all I was thinking about while watching this movie. I'm like, I'm not, my heart's not being warmed by this. And speaking of not heartwarming, I got to talk about what we're watching right now. Because, yeah, you mentioned, like, they they trick a lady into thinking that he hit her with his, hit him with his, her car so that they'll, she'll buy her, buy him dinner and give him money. And she does that, basically. I mean, she kind of gets whisked away by her, her boyfriend, and so they didn't get as much money as they might have wanted. Plus, he has a crush on her. But then you have this sequence where... Like, she's at dinner with her boyfriend, and she it's like she fell in love with them at, at first sight, and she's having these, like, wistful memories. It's as if she's remembering, like, days that she spent with these two people, and like, wow, I really missed an opportunity to let them further into my life. And she's, like, gazing wistfully out the window, like, what, are, what is Jim Belushi and his kid doing right now? It's like, what the fuck? You, you talk to them for, like, ten minutes. We are 17 minutes into this movie, and we get a flashback of shit that happened in the first 17 minutes. It's like, I'm watching the movie. I remember. And you get you get a depiction of like their current life, like they have to go to sleeping at a uh, what like a halfway house or something or whatever, the homeless shelter, and you know they're walking in the cold, and it's as if she's seeing that, or at least this is like her imagination of like this is what they must be going through right now because I let them go, as if and ultimately they they encounter each other by happenstance later. But it's like, what is she thinking of doing? Is she going to run off into the cold and go like, where are you, Jim Belushi? No, she's just thinking about, like, she could have done more for those two people she found, those two lost souls. It's hard to talk about this movie without first describing, like, the terribleness of its tone. Because we're opening up on a homeless man and his child. My mind goes to, oh, this is a drama. 
Like, this is... Yes. Because this is a sad thing. But it's played as comedy. Because when Jim Belushi is telling this little girl, okay, hit me in the face with that board so I'll get a big bruise on my head. That way the lady will think she hit me with the car. That shouldn't... That's not a funny scene. It's not a funny scene to see a homeless person get hit by a little girl. But John Hughes thinks it's funny. Yeah, they're playing it as a funny scene. And John Hughes clearly just doesn't understand the kind of movie he's making. He doesn't see the the almost unintentionally sinister quality of that. Like, you're teaching this girl that is under your charge, that you're a father figure to, these cons that involve, you know, faking injuries and things like that. In, in a real movie, like, this would be a dark... At least a sad moment, if not a dark moment of, like, should this guy be be this in this position with this kid yeah well like comparing it to like uncle buck like yeah uncle buck's making the kids giant pizzas but at least they're eating not garbage in this movie this little girl is eating garbage and i can't be like oh yeah no she should stay with jim belushi he's so like fucking endearing see and that that's the thing this movie at every point whenever the question of should he she be with Jim Belushi comes up it's always the bad guys saying like no like one well, bad guys like at least antagonists it's like the the evil boyfriend calls children's services then they come in and they're very sort of heartless and like she'll be placed in school and you'll never see her again and and it's like but they're all right like i mean he does the guy does it for bad reasons but like at no at every point the movie's like no she should be with Jim Belushi and everybody who thinks otherwise is wrong and no they're not yeah, no, it's very, very weird. Um, <laughs> that's like all I can really say about it is it's weird. So everything I'm going to say about this movie, just imagine that the movie's fucking weird. There's a scene in this movie. It's the big dramatic scene, like where Jim Belushi is telling all the shit about like how he's not the father and, you know, how he's lived his whole life. He's the right person to take care of this little girl. Mm-hmm. And then the woman goes... Ah, uh, no, you're totally wrong, and I have to take... And it's the, it's the most dramatic scene in the movie. And then at the end of that scene, she opens the closet door and hits Jim Belushi in the face, and it goes, boing-oing, and it goes, whoa, crosses his eyes and falls down. <laughs> that's, that's a fault in tone. Where's her mother? She's buried in Florida. You want to know the rest of the story? I'm not her father. I met her mother one night in a bar. Some people get VD from a one-night stand. I got a baby. She knows all about it. We got no secrets. There was another life for her. I cut my throat to give it to her. I didn't come in here to ruin your life. Our paths crossed, and you ended up here. You're right. You got scammed. I got a knock on the head, and the rest is bull. I got a lot of tricks I've been at a long time. You play something until it's over. And this is over. Not only that, I mean, well, I guess we'll get to it. I, I keep going back to how the villain is ultimately dispatched in the movie, the, the evil boyfriend. Like, it's it's enough, I think, that she chooses Jim Belushi over this guy, and this guy's obviously like a rich jerk who just sees poor people as nothing. 
but she has to like hit him with her, her car right. and like it becomes this like wacky like blues brothers scene where like they're going through the parking garage and he's like hanging from the car and it's just like what the fuck are you doing John Hughes we had enough here we didn't need this level of wacky slapstick comeuppance for this character yeah it's om- and i have no idea why it's there like if he's like thinking oh uh, this movie's i want kids to be entertained so even in this movie that's you know very dramatic about this homeless guy you know um i, I better throw in some like crazy sound effects cuz the, <laughs> the divorce attorney when she's when she hits them with the car again for the second time she's feeding curly sue like the first decent meal Curly Sue's had in probably ever. And Curly Sue's eating this food like really quick. And then the sound effects is like, and I'm like, no, this girl needs nutrition. This isn't like a funny scene. This is like, oh, finally, Curly Sue has a fucking food in her face. Yeah, what well, and and every because when you mentioned the illiterate thing, there's a sequence where because like at first when they meet, she's uh, Jim Belushi's like, oh, he, he, she's so smart, spell some word, and then you find out that she that's the only word she knows how to spell. It's just to show off to other people, and then she's like, spell cat, and she's like, I, I don't, I can't, and like that's a moment that again, like it. I was thinking, I've never seen it before. There's a Mickey Rooney movie, actually, I think there's two of them where he plays like a mentally challenged person. Oh, like Mr. Bill you, or something, yeah. Yeah, Bill on his own is what it's called, and I've always, I've never seen it, but I imagine like like that moment that movie is full of moments that like should have been this moment where like like Oscar Beatty moments where like you know like yeah I can't read and teach me to read you know and, but it's like and I'm I'm waiting for those and they never come to the point where it's almost as if the movie doesn't think it's a problem that you can't read. No, and then they, it think also thinks it's funny that Jim Belushi taught her how to be like a fucking card shark. She can shuffle cards and like find the four aces. So when she's playing poker, she has a handful of aces, but she doesn't know how to fucking spell or read. Which, but but the movie is like this isn't that. Who cares? This we're having a fun romp, right, guys? And that's the thing. If they could do both of those things, as long as they have the moment that questions the parenting of Jim Belushi and says, no, what you've done here is wrong, you can have that moment earlier and make it even a funny moment. Oh, she's really good at cards. But then you have to examine it. You have to go, she knows that but not how to read. That's a bad thing. You are a bad parental figure, Jim Belushi. And he has to acknowledge that. And the movie has to deal with that. And it never does. And that's, it's gobsmacking to me that at no point, like John Hughes is a smart man. He's a smart writer. At no point did it ever occur to him as the writer, director of this movie that you need to do that. You need to fucking question your premise and and deal with these ramifications. And the way it was marketed, too. I always thought this was like a, a fun little family comedy, you know? The poster is like the stereotypical, like, they got their backs to each other with their arms crossed, like, smiling, like, we're a couple of ragamuffins. <laughs> they're back to back, and they're like, you and me, kid, we're in this crazy mixed up world together. Now here's a garbage burger. <laughs> But yeah, but and or even on the other end of the spectrum, the idea of like the rich white lady taking these poor people into her house and to what extent is she complicit through her just, you know, having the privilege when you know, and not ever caring about these kind of people beforehand and sort of like the daddy Warbucks thing. But like examining that, like, you know, you're not her mom. What are you doing? Why aren't you calling children services the first night? You know? 
So th- th- there's there's culpability all around, but again, the movie just never tries to examine it. Before, can we talk about uh, Curly Sue's ring real quick? Because it's kind of like uh, the skeleton of the movie, you know? Like, it, it, it starts with the ring, kind of ends with the ring. Well, I assumed it was like a gift from her mother or something. It was the last thing she had. From, and they, I don't think they ever say that in the movie, but like that's the last thing that she had from her mom. I, in fact, maybe I even missed it because there's a point where she's they're going through like old pictures. Like she goes through her bag. Was there like a picture of her mom with the ring on maybe or maybe in the flashback? Maybe. Possibly. If there was, I missed it because that's what I'm questioning. It's like just like I said, they keep uh, Jim Belushi's backstory. We don't know anything about Jim Belushi's history in this movie, which would have made his character like so much more understandable. We could like we could try to rationalize why he's doing what he's doing. They keep that from us, but they also have this ring that is very prominent throughout the movie, and they keep that from us too, like what the importance or the significance of this ring is. Because there's three minutes of opening credits to this movie, uh, and that ends on this ring worn by Curly Sue, and they zoom in on it to the point where I thought the plot of this movie was going to be like a mafia subplot, and there's going to be like a million dollars hidden in that ring or something. I would not have been surprised in the fucking least. I was like, of course that's what this movie's about. Someone's going to want that ring. Some mobster's going to want her fucking secret million dollar well, ring. what I actually thought was going to happen is, like, we would find out that the ring was an indication. It was like an Anastasia thing. Like, it turned out she was really the missing daughter of, like, royalty or something. Or, like, a rich person. That theory also went through my mind. I was like, that ring is going to be really, really important. Because, n- I need to say it again. Over three minutes of opening credits, like nothing's happening in these opening credits. We're not learning about the plot. It's just three minutes of long, boring opening credits. Like the song is, it's not a fun song that opens up the movie. It's just like a really slow, drawn out opening credit sequence that ends on this ring. And I'm like, fuck it. I got it. I I know this. I know movies. This ring's going to be important, but it's fucking not. It's the save the cat thing. Part of the save the cat formula is your opening image and your closing image should be the same and they should be like basically sort of relevant to the main point of the movie, you know, and, and it opens with the ring and it's not quite the end, but you know, her getting the ring back is sort of a big part of the end. So it's clearly important at some level, but it's not borne out by the rest of the movie. No, because what happens is they go to a homeless shelter and they're spending the night there uh, and they're all in, they're on one cot and then there's this like creepy looking homeless guy and he's like hey I see that ring it looks valuable I'm gonna steal it and so he steals it pawns it for 15 bucks and that's the last you hear about the ring for a while until Jim Belushi ends up in jail like near the end of the movie sees that homeless guy and for some reason puts it together that that guy was the guy who stole the ring how did he fucking know that I mean, I don't know. He just he saw him next to him, and it was just a. I, I don't know. I don't. I didn't have so much of a problem with that. I just, again, by that point, you've completely forgotten that the ring was even a thing. Yeah, I, I had totally forgotten about the fact that that homeless guy stole the ring from Curly Sue, and then we're at the end of the movie. We see that homeless guy, and Jim Belushi's like, "Give me back the ring, you son of a bitch!" And I'm like, first off. This is the first time you've met this homeless man. Like, you weren't, like, buddies with this guy. He didn't confess to stealing the ring. Somehow you just know, like, oh, I remember that's the homeless guy who was, had the cot next to me that night. It must have been him. And then he gives the ring back to Curly Sue, I guess, as a sign of... Of what? 
Well, there was a... No, she said something earlier in the movie when he left initially to get a job. She was like, did he leave a note or something? And it was, but it was like some indication like she knew he'd be back because she knows what he does when he leaves, when he skips town. So that the idea was like he left a note. So that was the initial thing. Like he, he must be actually gone. That's why she starts crying when she gets the ring back and has the note because she knows that's what he does when he leaves for good. But obviously he doesn't leave oh. for good. He comes back. That's the... You're right. Yeah, she has uh, this. Uh, yeah, it plays out where uh, Jim Belushi's like, "I'll go get you. I'll get you another ring." And she says, "You don't have to do that because when you give me something, that means you're not coming back because you're giving me this to remember you by." Yeah. So yeah. So she cry- has a little moment of crying because. So oh my god. So are we the audience supposed to think that Jim Belushi's left in that moment? I thought so. Yeah. And I think it would have made for a better movie if he had. Yeah. It would have meant that the movie understood what was going on in the movie. All right. Maybe I'm just a bad, (laughs) bad movie watcher because I'm only getting that symbolism now. I'm like, oh, at the end, we were supposed to think he left because at the very beginning of the movie, she had that one scene where she said, people only leave, give me things when they're about to leave me. Well, I assume that's why she's crying because she assumed he left. No, it makes perfect sense. It's just... (laughs) The movie's poorly made, so you don't get that. I, I'm, yes, better at analyzing movies than you are. No. I'm just going to say it. Fuck it. No, I had forgotten about the thing she said in, in the first nine minutes of the movie. I am not judging you at all for not picking up on the subtle fucking clues that are laid in this goddamn movie. No, this movie, I, I was, it's poorly made, and the stuff that is set up isn't paid off well. So, yeah, you forget the whole threads, and then they come back again, and some don't come back. Well, like, the whole thing with her job and, like, the favor that she's owed by the guy who, like, <laughs> you hear about him, but you only meet him in the scene where she asks for the favor. And, like, you have to get from context clues that that's who this guy is. And I want to talk about that because I can't figure out... Okay, so she's a lawyer. Okay. And at first she's representing a woman this is against her husband in a divorce, right? This is okay, interesting because this is the part of the movie I was focusing on. So I, you picked up on the ring symbolism. I was really focused on whatever was going on behind the scenes that involved Senator Fred Thompson. Which, for the record, uh, has nothing to do with anything in the movie except it's a, a, a basically a plot mechanic in the third act. I know, but as soon as they introduced that shit, something pinged in my brain where I'm like, ah, this is Chekhov coming in. She literally <laughs> says, I'm going to have a favor owed to me. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> it's not very subtle. But yes, yeah, she's defending a woman whose husband has some kind of sexual uh, misdealings. And she's like, okay, well, we can take him for everything he's worth. Like, I have the proof that he's been doing this shit. I'll go to the press with this. We'll ruin his fucking life. I'll get you everything. But the wife is like, oh, no, I don't want to destroy him. I just want to divorce him. So then she's like, all right, well, I'm going to keep this as leverage. And then finally, at the end of the movie, she uses that to get Jim Belushi out of jail and Curly Sue out of Child Protective Services. You know, the thing she shouldn't be doing. They're much better off where they are. Well, because I don't know what the relationship... Like, Fred Thompson was her boss, right? Like, he's another lawyer at that law firm. Like, he's another partner, right? Yeah, I, I believe he's another, yeah, partner in the law firm. But is the idea that they are also representing him? 
because he keeps trying to pressure her to basically like screw over her own client, which I feel is like, like a, an ethical lapse that they never really get into. Because uh, he's always like, yeah, like lay off him, like like you know, he doesn't want you know this to get messy. And it's like, well, what you're that's not your client, as far as I know. I thought the the woman was your client. Yeah, well, okay. I said I was paying attention. The thing I don't understand, and I even one of my notes is why is Senator Fred Thompson giving advice in this scene? Well, because that was the scene I'm assuming when she's for no fucking reason whatsoever selling out her share of the law firm so she can quit the the law firm because I guess. I don't know, maybe it, it turned her into a bad person, but they don't really articulate that very well. I think the what we're supposed to get is that her experience with these uh, these ragamuffins have led her to believe that she's lost her way as a lawyer. Like, she's now she's, like, wheeling and dealing and doing bad things, even though she's doing bad things on their behalf in some points. But, like, I, like she, I think she feels like she's lost her way morally speaking or ethically speaking, so she has to leave. And so she's asking him his advice on that. Yeah, no, she gives up her job her career, everything, everything she's built because we she should, goes, we should point out for Jim Belushi because she goes on a hobo date with Jim Belushi. We've got to get to hobo date. Um, but first I want to talk about with we, the, uh, the cleaning her up montage <laughs> an hour in to this shitty, shitty fucking movie. Uh, yeah, we get a montage uh, that was a pretty, pretty choice. Um, but no, there was one other thing I just want, I wrote down that I didn't want to skip over. Uh, you talked about it. It's the scene where um, Jim Belushi is like, yeah, she's a smart kid. Uh, show her. Spell asphyxiation. And then Curly Sue spells asphyxiation. And we're supposed to believe that, oh, Jim Belushi's a good father. She's really intelligent. Um, but the way they do that, and this is a, you know, a nod to John Hughes's incredible direction, She's like, A, S, P, but then when she gets to T, some guy's just like, T-Bone! T-Bone! You know, this little angel's not only the cutest girl in the world, she's also the smartest. Why don't you spell something for her? How about asphyxiate? A, S, P, T-bone, T-bone, heavy on the meat, easy on the bone, potato, hot potato, T-bone, You know, I've written better looking meat than that. Fair, right, fair, right, fair, right. I-A-T-E. You ever seen anything like that? Is it because on set the girl couldn't actually spell asphyxiation? I thought it was weird that they cut the, they, they cut out her actually spelling the word. And cut to the guy screaming T-Bone. But the reason I wanted to bring it up is just because it reminded me of uh, Tracy Morgan and Head of State when he came in selling steaks. <laughs> and for a second, you know, I thought we'd cut to Tracy Morgan going, T-Bone, T-Bone! I didn't even put that together, but you have T- Tracy Morgan and Head of State just on like the TV selling steaks. And then later on we watch uh, How High, where he's just on the TV selling beans. <laughs> He's in two different movies in functionally the exact same role. He should be in every movie in that role. Every time you turn on the TV and there's just a random commercial in a movie, I want it to be Tracy Morgan selling me something. Okay, yeah, my next note is the, uh, an hour in, loving this dress-up montage. What the shit was this? (laughs) Well, one, it comes, it comes, like, I think way later in the movie than it should, considering, like, how long she's been with... These people. It's an hour in. Yeah. You are thinking this movie is going to be like a little orphan Annie thing where like 
little homeless girl gets adopted by a rich family and they turn her into, you know, a, a well-adjusted girl. That kind of happens, but it starts at the hour mark. You know what would have made this movie, I mean, much more interesting, but I think just much more enjoyable? And I mean, I'm also going to suggest killing Jim Belushi. But yeah, what if it was a con? We're going to pretend that she hits me with her car and then you were going to steal her money. And then it goes wrong and he dies like shortly after that. And then she feels guilty and like adopts her. But like, like, and like the Curly Sue doesn't tell her at first. And like, that's like her secret. And like, so it's like that sort of dramatic tension of like, does she ever tell her? That like like he jumped in front of her on purpose, but it it went wrong. Um yeah, well, because <laughs> there's two scenes where Jim Belushi gets hit by the car, and both of them end with the little girl going, "You killed my daddy," and I think we're supposed to laugh in those moments. But the second time it happened, I was rooting for Jim Belushi to die. And I mean, yes, I am always rooting for Jim Belushi to die in movies because they would make the movies better. But I just think specifically in this case, even if that was played by a good actor, I just think not having that character and again, the movie constantly forgiving his actions or not condemning him for his actions. I feel like just having it be the little girl and, you know, again, making it sort of like just a darker Little Orphan Annie story, I think would have made it more interesting. Yeah. Or he goes to jail or something. So he's missing from the movie. But his presence is still there. Um, like, yeah, he gets arrested um, and then she stays with the rich lady. But, you know, she can still visit him in prison. But while he's in prison, she's being taken care of well for the first time in her life. And then the movie is about, you know, her contrasting her two lives. Well, and Kind of like a fucking room, you know? At that point, you make him almost like an antagonist, like a Bill Sykes character from Oliver. Like, he, like yeah. the movie knows from the very beginning that he's the villain. You know, and he, he still cares about her, but he's just so wrong for her and can't accept that. And this is what forces that that realization. Yeah, well, like we said, Jim Belushi doesn't have any kind of mental illness or something. We don't get the backstory of why he's homeless, but there doesn't seem to be a reason why he is. Like, it seems that he is just enjoying this life. Like, he's a lovable tramp. He And instead of, you know, finding... Like, I hate to say this kind of shit because this is what, you know... I hate when people say this about the homeless. It's like an actual fucking problem. But this guy in this movie seems like he is what rich assholes think all homeless people are. Like, ah, they're just scamming. They like being homeless. They want to live under the bridges and they're just trying to get your money. Well, no, that's that's the but thing. that's kind of what it seems like. When you, you know, when you drive by the guy begging on the side of the road and you go, he's just going to spend it on booze. And it's like, maybe, but he probably needs booze more than I need my change. You know, so it's like, yeah, it's this kind of haughty thing that we have. It kind of reminded me a lot of, uh, like, not in the, but not in a charming way, uh, Jason Robard's character from A Thousand Clowns. Like, he's just sort of like, almost like iconoclastic. Like, society just does, he just doesn't fit in. So he's refusing to, to accept the obligation to fit in. Yeah, but he still has an apartment. <laughs> does, well, does he? Yes, he's not homeless. Oh, Jason Robards, does he mean? Yeah, no, yeah. But I mean, I just mean that's, I think that's what they were trying to go for with the Jim Belushi character, like that kind of energy. Yeah. Like, you know, he's he's a hobo because there's some kind of purity in that, that had he gotten a suit and gotten a job, he'd be, you know, selling out or something. Then why doesn't it work? Is it Jim Belushi or is it John Hughes? Probably a combination of both. Well, because the problem is because he is a hobo and that's not a good life. And yeah, sell out a little bit. If that's what the, the only problem with putting on a suit and getting a job, you got a fucking daughter to feed. Not your real daughter, but she is functionally your daughter. 
It's not so that you can't ever sympathize with his position. You know, yeah, you mentioned, yeah, Jason Robards, the character from The Thousand Clowns, has an apartment. But in that movie does what this movie doesn't do. It has the the guy come in and say, like, you can't be raising this kid this way. But you you can still kind of be on Jason Robards' side in that. Right. And then at, you can't be on Jim Belushi's side in this. And at the end of the movie, like the the very end of that movie is basically he sells out for the good of this kid. He's just like, "All right. Yeah. I got to fucking get a job, I guess." A Thousand Clowns is the good version of this movie. <laughs> no, this movie, uh, Jim Belushi for like 30 minutes of this movie, we're supposed to I think see Jim Belushi as a, a good father figure. But he's not. His kid can't fucking read. All she knows how to do is count cards. Oh, I fucking forgot about this scene where they have a maid come in and, like, she takes a big... Sh- I thought she was going to take a big shit, but it's just she was changing. <laughs> I did, too. I thought we were going to get a scene where Jim Belushi watches the maid take a shit. And then after that, she almost sits on his face, too. A very oddly directed scene. And there's no... I, I, I guess it's supposed to be funny. I wasn't finding it funny, but it has no point to the rest of the movie. It's not like this becomes a reason for anything to happen. No, she's not a character. You never all. see the maid character again. No, I thought they were, I thought they were setting the maid up as to be like a cohort. Like, now they're a threesome. Like, they're, they're a trio of lovable oddballs. But no, it's just this maid comes in and Jim Belushi is laying in bed because this is when he's scamming the lady pretending he got hit by the car. And I thought he he was like going to try to watch her change because then she starts changing. And I'm like, oh, this is gross. Jim Belushi's just going to watch this girl change her clothes. But then she goes into the bathroom, takes her clothes off and like looks like she's going to sit down. And I'm like, no, I think Jim Belushi's going to listen to her take a shit. And here's the crazy thing about this movie. I thought they were introducing this character in like an almost meat cute fashion so that she could be the woman that he ends up with in the end of the movie. Cause like, I was like, there's no way that they can justify Jim Belushi and the, and the rich lady like falling in love at the end. It seems like they're love interest, but they're going to, they're going to be mature about this and go like, no, we don't work together. But I met this crazy kooky maid and she's, she likes the kid. I got that. They were setting that up. No, maid never shows up again after like the next scene. And it, but that's just how incredulous I was that they could pull off what they ultimately don't pull off, but still try to do at the end where they're in love. Like, no, that, that couldn't possibly fucking happen. Okay. We got to talk about this dress up montage. Because <laughs> rich lawyer lady is taking Curly Sue to a department store. And she's like, I'm going to get Curly Sue some fancy new duds. And this is the most bizarre dress-up montage I've ever seen. Because y- you would think we would get a montage of Curly Sue trying on new outfits, right? Because mm-hmm. you've seen dress-up montages before. They are a staple of the era in which the film was made. In this movie, there's two, like... <laughs> receptionists who are like how can we help you then they start bringing out clothes and then they start trying on clothes and at one point one of them is dressed up as a cowboy these characters that we have not been introduced to yet are trying on jackets and like to the point where it almost feels like a choreographed dance like they're kind of like spinning around each other and like 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 it's clear like they're performing in a way that they understand they're in a montage. Two girls are bringing out boxes of clothes and they're doing spins and they're bringing the box twirling the boxes over their heads. 
And it was just an hour into this movie that I was just like fucking hating. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, what What just fucking... Did I like will a crazier movie into existence? And then they have the bathing sequence, which I feel like... Or I guess I think they also had like a thing of dialogue about her hair. And like it's she's called Curly Sue because she's got curly hair. And because then there's, there's like a dramatic beat at the very end when she goes into Child Protective Services and they, they finally get her out and they've cut her hair. And like, I didn't understand like that was such a part of her identity that she's like, they cut my hair. And that's supposed to be like the hardship that she suffered. Yeah, I didn't get that scene either because uh, they didn't make a big deal out of her hair before then. So I didn't know she was... No, there's one reference to it. Yeah, I didn't know she was that protective or fond of her hair. Um, but this dress-up montage just comes at a weird time, because we're an hour into the movie, and then all of a sudden, the tone does kind of shift into, like, wacky, like, Ferris Bueller-style comedy for a second. Because then we get the scene at the French restaurant, where, um, we talked earlier, Steve Carell's in the movie I for a second. I forgot that. Jim Belushi, at the beginning of this movie goes into a fancy French restaurant to try to get a free meal. And then he gets kicked out of the restaurant by the giant chef that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, too. But then now, he's he's in a suit. And he goes to the French restaurant again with the divorce attorney. And he's like, hey, remember me? And the French restaurant, like, Mater D's like, that homeless man from the beginning of the movie? Which would have been enough for the joke, and it would have made sense within the context of a reasonable world that you're living in watching the movie. And then he starts, like, slapping him in the face. <laughs> he punches the guy in the face, like, three times in a row. While the guy evidently feels obligated to just stand there and take it, because he's a customer, I guess, and now he's in a fancy suit, even though I know him to be a homeless person. So, like, my first assumption would be, well, you're clearly conning this lady out of money, so I'm going to warn her, hey, you know this guy's a homeless con man, right? No, I'm just going to sit there and go, well, I must have been mistaken the first time. You weren't homeless before. That was my fault. So, fine, punch me in the face. I I am owed that. Yeah, so what are they trying to tell us in this movie? Because... All Jim Belushi does is he shaves, he takes a shower, and he puts on a suit. And then all of a sudden, he is like the fucking most charming man in the world. So is that what the movie's trying to tell us? It's like, hey, I know you're down on your luck, homeless guy, you know. But if you put on a suit and took a shower, hey, you could get a job like that, right? You just have to go out in the world. We never see Jim Belushi get this job that he says he got. Which again, yeah, we we both we both assumed that... And he, because it's like within a day, he just goes and gets a job, and then he has a job. Has he ever gotten? You a need job? a scene. Wow, well, I want one would assume no, because if he could get a job that easily, why didn't he do it before? So where's and he again, getting a job? Unless it was a, a psychological thing. Where's a guy who's been homeless for the last five years with no fucking employment record at all getting a job in a day in a three piece suit? Like I would imagine if he like got a job as like a fry cook or something, I'd be like, oh, that makes sense. But he's going out in a suit and he's like, yeah, I got a job as an investment banker or something. Like, what the... What? Well, I don't think he ever says what the job is, but I think you solve that in one scene, which has potential to be dramatic, where he goes to, like, the the city, like the government employment office or whatever, and, you know, he gets maybe looked down on, like, they look down on everybody that comes in there, and, you know, he maybe has to give a speech about how he's worth it, and, like, you know, he, you know, you know, give me a chance and I can actually do make something of myself. You know, you could do something like that, 
this movie doesn't feel like it needs to do anything like that because it's not judging Jim Belushi as a character who needs that moment in his life. He's just the lovable scoundrel. Of course he could just get a job in a day because, you know, he's Jim Belushi. He's great. And it wouldn't have been so bad except that there's a fucking kid in the middle of this movie. Like, if this was a movie about lovable hobo Jim Belushi just riding the rails and he meets a lady, that's fine. But when it's like, no, I've had this kid with me for five years. She can't read. But hey, if I take a shower, maybe you'll fuck me. There's a reference in the scene right after she leaves him in the diner or whatever, where like he hands her toothpaste, like, go brush your teeth. And she's like, I brushed my teeth in a different state. And he's like, yeah, now we're in this state. Brush your teeth here. So obviously it's been weeks, if not months, that she has brushed her teeth. So, like, she, how many cavities does she... Why isn't that a part of the dresser montage? They take her to the fucking dentist, and he's like, every one of her fucking teeth have cavities. I can't be the only person who thought of this, right? <laughs> like, we can't be the two people, the only two people, who were like, hey, the just the plot of this movie should not work. Like, it shouldn't work with the fucking script you wrote. Well, it should not and does not. You got a movie about a homeless guy with a kid? Put it on the fucking movie screen. What do we give a shit? Well, and I and, and that's a condemnation of the filmmakers because there are a lot of movies where the plot shouldn't work but does. Short Circuit 2, a fucking robot in New York uh, that, that makes you feel for him when, when gang members beat him to death. That shouldn't work, but it does. It's great. This shouldn't work, but it could if you made it right and they just don't. That yeah. that line about the toothpaste is a microcosm of the whole, of the whole movie. You're supposed to find that as a funny joke that... This girl only brushes her teeth every couple of weeks because they don't have a home because they're homeless. Hilarity ensues. No, it doesn't. I keep saying she's five. Roughly what age do you think she is? Like six or I, seven I would say no older, no older than eight. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Like this girl should be in school. Like to the point where like they just put, they just put her in school at the end. The, what, no, you can't. She can't just go to school. This girl cannot well, no, spell yeah. cat. She can't just go to school at the end of the movie and we're expected to go like, oh yeah, she'll be fine. She'll catch up. We don't have a lot more to talk about, but we have so much more to talk about because now we got to talk about this fucking hobo date. I mean, it's it's the central point of the movie, but I don't understand the point of it, honestly. Neither do I. Like, what does it add to the narrative? Nothing. Because like, you could say maybe it helps like cement their relationship. Like she accepts him for who he is. But it doesn't really. Like, I think that was the goal of it. Yeah. Um, so they go to the fancy French restaurant. Uh, the lawyer lady is like, all right, Jim Belushi, we, you've cl- you clean up nice. I'll take you out on a date. And then Jim Belushi's like, we don't need money. I'll take you on a date. Hobo style. Cut to they're riding a garbage truck down the street. And then they're getting free food at uh, a dinner. They're uh, a wedding. They're crashing a wedding. Um, and she's just like completely charmed by this. But then they go to a 3D movie. Now, before we get to that, I want to talk about the wedding scene because this the implication of this is I'm going to show you how we do things our way. There's no way he would have ever been able to pull this off before because he didn't have the suit before. That's true. <laughs> he and Curly Sue went in there looking like hobos and were like, I'm going to make a toast to the to the groom. No, that would never shit would never would have happened. This this is not a real thing. This is how, so he's making this shit up as he goes along to impress her. One line would have been nice where he's like, "You know what makes it easier? 
the suit and the shave and the not smelling like poop. Every other time we've tried this, they've kicked us out because we looked like hobos. But now I think we can actually pull it off. I usually don't get past the door. What with the urine stench and everything. (laughs) But yeah, and it's like it comes to nothing. But yeah, let's get to the movie theater. They're running this like little scam. Curly Sue sneaks in and then lets them in the side entrance. And so they sneak in the movie theater. The movie theater is packed. It is packed. They did not buy tickets. How did they find three seats together? I mean, I don't know. Again, it's the thing that in a in a movie that I was more interested in, I would question the mechanics of it. But it's I don't It's the care. only thing I could focus on. Because they are in a 3D movie that is bananas. This 3D movie. People have on 3D glasses. They're all moving in unison to the action of the film. <laughs> They are acting like it's a ride at fucking Universal Studios. They're like, whoa! And they're like jumping in the air. And they're moving side to side. And they're like, whoa! And the lawyer lady is laughing like she has never laughed before. Like this is the first time she's ever experienced joy in this 3D movie. That again is packed. Theater packed full of people. These three snuck in. Somehow got three seats together right in the middle of the fucking Uh, theater. Where did they get the 3D glasses? Don't you have to get those from the people? They show briefly Curly Sue ran in and stole them. Oh, okay. Like stole them from the pile or something. They did establish that. But then (laughs) Jim Belushi is like, oh, I know how to get us free popcorn. The guy who's sitting next to me, I'll steal his popcorn. And hopefully he just won't care. He'll be too distracted by the 3D movie that he won't notice that I just stole his popcorn and I'm just eating it. We're getting to the point where like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna take you on a hobo date. And this is going to be the way I charm you. Full disclosure, is that the first time you've ever said that? I mean, I'm not going to get into my personal life on a podcast. <laughs> is that the first time you've ever said, I'm going to take you on a hobo date? Because when you said it, it sounded so natural. <laughs> I, that's irresponsible during COVID. It, it's got to be a homo Zoom date. Uh, but no, it's just all these things they're doing are crime. I mean, I guess sneaking into a movie theater, it's an innocent crime. But then you steal the popcorn. I, I, I thought the whole point was that he was bettering himself for her. I guess it's almost like a grease thing. It's like, well, you're going to teach me how to be a shit person. Like we're going to meet in the middle. <laughs> If you teach me your hobo ways and I become more like a hobo, maybe I will learn to love you. And then also getting back to this fucking 3D movie. Just bizarre. Again, this movie is like a fucking weird science experiment. It's a slapstick romantic drama. It's crazy how poorly directed this movie is. And then there's a scene like this weird 3D movie theater scene. And I just, I don't know what to think. I don't know what anybody was thinking. Because he also, like, he fakes like he's choking, Jim Belushi does. And then the guy next to him gives him his soda. So now Jim Belushi has the guy's soda. And he's sharing it with Curly Sue and the lawyer lady. And the lawyer lady loves it again. She's like, oh my god, I've never had a guy take me on a fucking hobo date before. Well, and and I want to use this as a way of getting into, segueing into the, the other boyfriend. Right after that montage, which is all wacky slapsticky stuff, you cut to this like dark sequence where the camera is slowly spinning around this character who is essentially our villain, 
he's the other boyfriend and he's jealous of Jim Belushi and Curly Sue. So, and this is him deciding, we, we later find out, deciding to call children's services. But it's like, it's this, this slow moment of like rumination of like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get this girl and get rid of them? So it's like, the, it bounces to like that really just grim depiction of like, you didn't even have to see it. Cause later on she, she challenges him on it and goes like, Hey, did you do, make that call? And he says, yes. Had you not seen it, you could have, like, made that kind of, like, a little mystery. But no, it's just, you know, we have to have this weird atonal moment. Every moment has to have a different tone so we can bounce between them. Because right after that, they have a jaunty thing where they're playing piano together. Yeah, it's it's very weird because we're jumping all over the place tone-wise in this movie. That's why I said this movie is just bizarre to watch because then there's a fancy dress-up montage and you're like, where the fuck did this come from? We're all having fun, and then the villain, is he's got malice in his voice as he's calling Child Protective Services, even though that is what he should do 100%. He should call Child Protective Services in this moment. Uh, and then later, Jim Belushi goes to jail. The lawyer lady is, like, running around because she's she's got to get Curly Sue out of the uh, protection agency. She's got to get Jim Belushi out of jail, or she's trying to fix it. It's a very tense moment. And then we cut to fucking Edie McClurg. Well, you know, they're so sensitive. Well, my Aunt Bernice had those. When the schnauzer stepped on her foot, I thought she was going to go through the ceiling. Is he in, yes or no? Well, you have a seat over there. Let me finish my call, and then I'll tell you. You could try those air pillow insoles, you know. Or maybe the water kind. You put them in the fridge, and then it just freezes your foot. I really need to see him. Well, isn't that a pity? He has a meeting in about five minutes. Oh, I'm sorry. He has a meeting right now. Oh, oh, oh yes, I'll call you right back. You can't cut to Edie McClurg during a tense, dramatic moment. Which, is she meant to be playing the same character from Fer- Ferris Bueller? Like she got a new, different secretarial job? I think so. Yeah, but she's run- the lawyer lady's running around like, dun-dun, dun-dun, what am I going to do in this? It's the climax of the movie. And then just Edie McClurg like, hey, how you doing? Okay, I'll let you in. I'm like, wait, what? Now, now Edie McClurg's in the movie? I want, it, I want there to be a movie where like it's all serious action, whatever. And like, there's a character who's like hanging from a ledge, and we gotta get up there. Like, uh, but like the lady thing is Edie McClurg, and she's having a conversation with her girlfriend, going like, "Yeah, what about this?" And they're like, "No, no, someone <laughs> is fucking dying right now." It's like, "Yeah, look, hold on one minute. I gotta tell my friend about the, the laundry I did this morning." <laughs> no, you can't put that in a movie because it doesn't make any fucking sense, John Hughes. And somebody just punches Edie McClure right in the face. Like, we don't have time for this shit. We're not emotionally ready for Edie McClurg in this moment. Um, and then, to just tie it all together, like, you were talking about that scene where the, the evil boyfriend is calling Child Protection Services. He's got malice in his voice. It's very tensely directed. It's, the, yeah, the camera's circling. He's like, yes, abuse, child abuse. And then the way we dispatch him is the fucking car going around in circles, crazy music playing. He's holding onto the hood like, whoa! Well, and right, like it's a fucking Saturday morning cartoon. And I do just want to talk about right before that because she challenges him on it. She's like, 
you know, you're the one who called Child Protective Services, aren't you? He's like, who, me? Why do you think that? Come on, just say it. And, like, she needs him to admit it, even though it's clearly obvious, but, like, he keeps going, like, well, if it was me, maybe it was the right thing to do. I don't know. And it's just, like, why are you being so broad in this moment? And then I realize it's to set us up for she's going to hit him with her car and drag him around the fucking parking garage. It's so bizarre just what I, I could not tell for the life of me what they were trying to go for in this movie. It is a complete failure. Uh, do not watch Curly Sue. <laughs> Although, you're probably doing a good job of that already. I feel like you were all going to go like, I, I gotta watch Curly Sue, but but what do they think about it? Do they Are they going to tell me to, to watch it or not? I didn't even know they were going to I thought they were going to watch The War with Grandpa, but still. But no, I, I got nothing else. So let's, let's figure out what we're going to watch next week, or rather, what you're going to cancel watching next week, and so then we watch another fucking shitty movie. Oh, uh, I didn't know. Did you want to pick a, or do you want to find something oh, random again? Oh, do you, you want to just, did you yeah. just want to pick something? I mean, I, I will just pick something deliberately if you like. Are we just not as married to that randomization as we used to be? No, I don't care. Just as long as it has a Saturday Night Live cast member. I mean, it. well, at this point, I don't really have one on deck. Like I was saying, possibly accidental love, but I mean, I, no, go ahead and fucking roll the thing. Let's see what happens. So I will pretend I just picked John Belushi. Unless, you mean... was there a Jim Belushi movie? Oh, fuck, I did it! I'm sorry, Jim Belushi? I'm pretty sure I didn't do it for the entire podcast, by the way. I was very mindful of that. I don't think that. we did. You fucking did it this time, you fucking asshole. I don't think we did until now. Alright, pick a number between 29 and 153. Well, I just saw Marina Banks was low on the list, so I'm going to go ahead and pick a higher number than that. Um, <laughs> let's go with... Let's go with 86. <laughs> Pick Fuck. another one because 86 is John Ew, Milheiser. So hard, John Milheiser. We can watch Zoolander 2. I think he's in that. He's not in any. Uh... No, Ghostbusters is what I was thinking of. I thought it was Zoolander 2, but he wasn't. But we already watched Ghostbusters. In my memory, if my memory serves, did we watch Ghostbusters, the, the remake, for John Milheiser? Hey, we did. Um, it was playing in the theater at the time. I remember that episode, um, because it was fucking crazy because we pulled John Milheiser's name out of the hat and then we're like, oh, he's not in any movies. And then we went and saw Ghostbusters and he's fucking in it. Okay. I'm going with 120. Mr. Or Mrs. Horatio Sands. Horatio Sands. We got something to work with there. I'm, I'm comfortable I guess. Right. Okay, well, nothing uh, great. The man. Miracle on 34th Street, Road Trip, Tomcats, Tomcats. I mean, it's not a good movie, but it'd be kind of interesting to watch, especially in a post-Me Too era, I think. Uh, year One, Freak Dance, Hollywood and Wine, High Road, Bachelorette, uh, Wreck-It Ralph, The Dictator, GBF. Gay Best Gays. Friend, I believe. is that what the, yeah. uh, uh, Any interest in... I guess Tomcats are the man. Oh, wait, and then Rebound, where Martin Lawrence coaches a basketball team? I mean, of those three, I, I mean, I, not Rebound. I would say either either Tomcats or The Man. I've never seen The Man. I remember seeing Tomcats when it came out and not enjoying it at all. This, I mean, it's a Samuel L. Jackson, Eugene Levy comedy. I mean, it's not going to be good, but it might be interesting bad. Yeah, all right. I don't care. You pick. I, right? I Technically, I picked... Uh, you picked both of our last movies, the aborted one and the the one we actually watched. Um, All right, so I'll leave it up to you. This time, you can pick the man, 
if you watch 10 minutes of it and hate it, you can call an audible and pick something else. All right, I'm going with The Man from 2005, Samuel L. Jackson, Eugene Levy. In that period where Eugene Levy was just in everything because he was in American Pie. Yeah, Eugene Levy, Samuel L. Jackson, and of course, Horatio Sands. Well, I mean, we wouldn't be watching it without that. All right, so tentatively, the man for Horatio Sands. And if not the man, Tomcats. All right, so uh, I'm sure we can find Tomcats if we can't find the man. I'm just worried I can't find the man because Google searched the man and... Well, we could watch That's the... That's a shitty uh, title for a movie. Wasn't there a movie with uh, James Earl Jones where he was like the first black president? I think it was just called The Man. Yeah, that was called The Man too. yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so Horatio Sands week next week. Time for The Man with Samuel L. Jackson and Eugene Levy. Or... Something else, you never know. I mean, maybe there's a boat trip too, we don't know. We we like to keep you on your toes. Alright, so until we see you again. Get off the shit. Get off the shit. You never know which way a day is gonna take you. There's always some surprise that comes along to shake you. A simple rule of thumb that's often neglected is take life as it comes expect the unexpected you never see exactly where the road will lead you and when it comes to love you gamble when you need to you maybe break your heart on one unlucky throw but then again 